Welcome to the Due Diligence Podcast. I'm your host, Robert Kraft. And for more than 10 years with SNN, I've been doing interviews with microcap management teams at investor conferences globally, as well as online. Our SNN Live CEO video interviews are meant to pique interest, and then one can discover more by going to that company website. But personally, I always have more questions I want to ask. On this show, I'll be chatting with public company executives from microcap companies, and we'll dive deeper into companies that are rarely profiled. Microcap traditionally is overlooked, unloved, and absolutely never featured on legacy financial media outlets unless something material is going on that's a good story. With my experience interviewing management teams, having interviewed most of them before, I've built up a network of companies, so there will be no shortage of content. Furthermore, this is an opportunity for me to showcase some of the qualitative lessons I've learned from guests on the Planet Microcap podcast. You can expect high quality interviews with management teams that may have exposure to broader macro trends that you may never have thought of. One of the many reasons why I love the microcap space. So if you love microcaps and especially love learning about companies before the professionals do, let's start our due diligence. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not provided as financial, legal, or any other advice. The information is not investment advice or an offer to buy or sell any securities or make any investment. The views expressed by guest speakers are their own and any reference to third-party product services or information does not constitute an endorsement thereof by SNN or its affiliates. SNN expressly disclaims all liability for any individual's use of the information presented in this podcast. My guest on the show today is Todd Cravens, CEO of Galaxy Gaming Inc. It's a publicly traded company. This symbol is GLXZ on the OTCQB. Galaxy Gaming Inc. is a gaming company that designs, develops, acquires, assembles, markets, and licenses proprietary casino table games and associated technology platforms and systems for the gaming industry. The company's proprietary table games comprise side bets, which are proprietary features and wagering options added to public domain games, such as poker, baccarat, Gao poker, craps, and blackjack table games, and premium games, which are standalone games with their own unique set of rules and strategies. It offers side bets under the Lucky Ladies, 21 plus 3, and bonus craps titles, and premium games under the Heads Up Hold'em, High Card Flush, Cajun Stud, and Three Card Poker. I think Galaxy Gaming has always stood out in my mind because at one of my first investor conferences, they had a blackjack table set up in the sponsor area. And when I was just getting my start on this microcap journey, I got to network and chat with fellow microcap investors over a couple of games. I can't believe that was back in 2011, and the company has been through a lot since then. CEO Todd Cravens and I discussed quite a bit, including settling up corporate issues with Galaxy's former CEO accelerating the business out of COVID, understanding Galaxy's business model, and the barrier to entry and moats around Galaxy Gaming. With that, please enjoy my conversation with Todd Cravens, CEO of Galaxy Gaming. Welcome everyone to the Due Diligence Podcast. I'm your host, Robert Kraft. You can follow me on Twitter at Bobby K. Kraft. That's B-O-B-B-Y-K-K-R-A-F-T. And joining me today is Todd Cravens. He's the president and CEO of Galaxy Gaming. It's a publicly traded company. The symbol is GLXZ on the OTCQB. Todd, thank you for joining me today. How are you doing? Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. I'm doing well. It's great to have you on. 
So I like to start off uh, every interview uh, on the due diligence podcast with what's if you could describe the company in that one line, that one sweet one liner, what would it be? Um, we are the omni-channel table game experts, which means we are in the, the gaming business. So we create games. Uh, I'm sitting at a gaming table right now, and we deliver content to casino customers throughout the world, both in brick and mortar and in the iGaming space. Very good. All right. So now I can get into my little history. I've known this company since I came into the business. I remember going to an LD Micro and seeing the, the, seeing the table. Everyone's out there, you know, in between sessions, playing poker, playing something. And um, so it's and it's been a, an interesting ride, to say the least. So I, I know you've joined the company a, you know, a few years ago now. Um, but before we get into, you know, you join the company, then eventually becoming president CEO, you know, can you provide that overview and history of the company? And, and what was the original problem Galaxy Gaming, Gaming was looking to solve? Yeah, so the original uh problem or our product of the company was about 23 or so years ago. The founder of the company, Rob Saucier, created a side bet to Blackjack and essentially gives a, another betting opportunity to Blackjack, a little bit higher house edge, if you will, a little bit more volatility. So the opportunity to win a bit more than you would on just a straight uh, bet on Blackjack. And so um, it was really one silkscreen circle on a felt that grew into this business and and Rob uh, Rob was a hustler and he built it up and went around to a lot of different casinos and started coming up with more games and went out and licensed a few and went beyond blackjack games into poker games and a handful of other ones and uh, built it into a tidy little business and then uh, I joined the company uh, a little over five years ago at the beginning of 2017. Very good and before we get into that I mean, how has the has the has the company evolved or changed over time? Is is the thesis still more or less the same? Yeah, I mean, the thesis is still pretty much the same. We make great table games. I would say that the channels in which we derive our income or where we deliver it has totally changed. So I sit here on a table with green felt, which is typically what people would see in most casinos here. But we license our content to other electronic table games. So you know, you would sit at a terminal and you could play our content on that. And then one of the fast growing areas of our business is iGaming. So here in the States, there's only about five states that have legalized iGaming, which means if you're in the state of Pennsylvania or New Jersey or West Virginia, um, it's all geofenced. You get on a website, be it DraftKings or FanDuel or what have you, and while they offer sports betting in many states, they offer iGaming only in a handful. So you could go online and play our games in those states through one of the operating casinos. So in the states, there's about five right now states that offer iGaming, but um, in the rest of the world, we're on roughly another 800 online casinos. So you have a lot more mature markets in the EU and UK where these iGaming casinos have been out there for a long period of time. Got it. All so right, we still make great content. We just deliver it through different channels now. Got it. All right, we're gonna we're gonna dig into all that in a little bit. I want to get to your background, as you mentioned. Uh, you you joined the company back in January 2017 as vice president of business development, and then you were appointed CEO in July 2017. You know what what originally attracted you to Galaxy Gaming, and how has I mean we've kind of addressed this part about the thesis and how it's maybe changed slightly going more into iGaming, but 
I guess originally, what was it that attracted you about joining Galaxy Gaming? Yeah, so originally um, I was at a different uh, table games company uh, for the four or five years before I joined the company. And uh, it was a company called TCS John Huxley. And we made most of the world's roulette wheels and table games and all sorts of stuff, mostly manufacturing layouts and all that type of thing. And it was great when there was a casino opening or someone needed to redo their floor. Um, but it was a CapEx business and it was very kind of lumpy, right? Casino opening, great month. No casino opening is not a great month. So I was looking for a business where that had recurring revenue and that would kind of fill in those peaks and valleys that was uh, somewhat adjacent to our business. And that was right around the time that um, Galaxy Gaming had the issue in California where California said, hey, we're not, we're not digging these guys. And uh, the company had to leave the state of California. Again, the gaming industry is highly, highly regulated. Related, right, it's a privileged license business, and we have to go in and get states. Uh, we have to get licenses by state, and in many situations by tribe if it's a Native American casino and things like that. So I was looking at this as an opportunity to say, okay, TCS should go and, and buy Galaxy, and so that was really kind of the introduction to the company. Outside of the fact that when I would go travel, customers really, really liked this company. You know, they were really very small company at the time, but the customers, you know, I always heard really positive things. So uh, I got uh, the owner of my company at TCS and uh, Rob Saucier, who is the founder and CEO of Galaxy in the same room. And uh, they weren't able to, to get a deal done for you know, whatever reason. And so at that point, I had decided that I was gonna leave TCS just because I was looking for something a little bit more innovative to do and that type of thing. And uh, Rob reached out to me. And I think that they were looking to you know, bring on some more uh, folks that had a pretty good sense of the business uh, on things. And so when you, do, when you wanna bring someone on and you don't know where to put them, what do you do? You give them the business development title and that's where I landed. So, um, you know, during that period of time, uh, what had happened is after California had said no to the company, uh, the state of Nevada had called the company forward and said, we want you to go through the licensing process. And so in uh, July of 2017, so about six months after I joined, is when uh, Nevada Gaming had us in there. And it was, a, it was a pretty rough session. And they said, you know, we are looking for some fundamental differences in the makeup of the company in order for you to get your license. And so they worked really, really well with us, I thought. And so we made some changes to the company. At that time, um, uh, Rob stepped down as the chairman and CEO. And uh, Mark Liparelli, who happened to used to be on the gaming control board for Nevada, took the chairman's role and I took the CEO role. And so that's really kind of how I got into my position. And after we did that, Nevada Gaming Control Board uh, gave us um, the opportunity and we got our license. And we, we thought, okay, we're set for go. Let's go open up every Every other jurisdiction there is. And, um, you know, that structure didn't work for all of the other uh, states. And so, you know, as is, you know, pretty well documented, we went, we got to a point where we redeemed Rob's shares. Uh, we had lawsuits going back and forth. But ultimately, uh, November of last year, we reached a settlement with Rob and we were able to pay him out. And Rob uh, was able to take his money and he has exited the company fully. We don't have any ongoing relationship or owe Rob any further monies on things. And so now the company is really at a point where we don't have to worry about, 
you know, getting a license in a jurisdiction, where can we go, where can't we go? We're really at a point right now where, you know, it's now time to turn on the afterburners and do that type of work. Absolutely. I have to ask just real quick. I mean, that's, that's four years. I mean, you're four years into your tenure as CEO and that's something that's always been hanging over, you know, the company in your But I had two years of COVID at the same time. So don't, you know. (laughs) Yeah, right. (laughs) We had had a period of time where two or three months, I didn't have one casino open that was a paying customer. So um, yeah, I mean, I would say when I look back on it, two things, um, we were able to go through all of the items, I think, with Rob and even kind of accelerating out of COVID for a couple of reasons. I think the company did a really, really good job of continuing to take care of the customers. Uh, we actually even, you know, we the week that uh, the world ended in March of uh, 20, you know, we sent out a press release that we aren't going to charge our customers. And as you can imagine, people were a little surprised on something like that. It was the right thing to do, right? We're not going to charge you if this thing's going to, if everything's shutting down. Remember, March of 20, no one knew what this thing was really going to be. So I think there was that. And I think underlying that is that we have a pretty good um, business model. So as things came back online, you know, our business is 100% recurring revenue. So if we can get people back online, if we can get people to take a, a, you know, a few more tables, if we can get more placements in the iGaming space, our business model kind of can churn back up rather quickly on things. So you know, underlying, I think, the issues that we dealt with with COVID and those things, I, thought, I think the team here did a really, really, really good job of taking care of our customers. And that's how we were able to bounce back rather quickly, I think. All right. Is there anything else we missed from that tumultuous time that we didn't cover on oh, here? Because God. otherwise, I'd like to get into the business. So many stories, but we, we should move on to the good stuff. All right, let's do it. All right. So you mentioned the business itself. We talked about what the company is selling, you know, table games, getting game, providing games for the iGaming space. Tell us a little bit about the business model itself. And you mentioned it's hundred percent recurring. So I'm sure people's ears are perking up and want to understand how, how, how that works. Yeah. So basically uh, we're an IP company. We create games and we license that IP. So we think about our business in two separate, we call it kind of GG core, which is the brick and mortar business and then uh, iGaming. So if we talk about the core, what we'll do is we'll license people the ability to deal our games. That's the easiest way to think about it. You want to put a side bet on blackjack. Okay. Here's the price point. You can go out and, and print those games and deal those games. And again, remember what we do. We take blackjack that is, you know, a 1% whole game and you put a side bet on there and we can increase that to 10% on the whole. So, you know, what players are looking for, players are looking for a little bit more volatility into their gaming, right? So they want a bigger payout. What are operators looking for? Operators are looking for a better margin on things. And so we kind of do both of those things. So beyond that, what we'll also add is hardware and software on tables where we'll put a progress on. So think of a tote board that goes up with each bet, gets a little higher, gets a little higher. So we can really, really create an elastic bet is what I call. So for $5, you can win $25,000, not something you're really able to do on a lot of other table games. So we, we put more and more progressives out on tables because players are looking for that type of volatility in their game. And one of the things that's great is the more electronics we put out on a game, the stickier the content is, right? Once we put that out, people really are are enjoying playing that and we do really well with it. So 
most of what we do uh, in the uh, brick and mortar space is a, a fixed fee. And then in some markets, we actually have a per bet fee, right? So, but again, it's recurring. In the iGaming space, it's a little bit different where we participate in our deals are on a percentage of GGR or gross gaming revenue. So in big round numbers or big terms, it's the amount of bets, the amount of payouts back to the player leaves gaming revenue. And then we take a percentage of that. So over time, math is your friend, but you could have a month where something overholds and you'll make a little bit more. You could have a month where a player beats a casino and you don't participate on that month. So there's a little bit more volatility, but over time, the theoretical will work itself out. So, um, so those are really kind of the differences, but each one is a monthly recurring revenue. Got it. And, and how are GGs? I like the GG. You know, we'll call you guys GG now. I, I, how are GGs games and your IP and the business model unique and different, maybe compared to some of your peers out there? Yeah, I well, it's a little bit different from a standpoint of brands, right? Uh, you know, this is this whole thing right now is set up, and my my friend Felicia's in the back. She's in charge of marketing. Her job is to make sure that twenty one plus three stays Coca Cola and doesn't become RC Cola, right? The branding of our stuff is is so so important on things, and so especially when we start to see uh, our products go into the online space. And imagine if you're a player in Pennsylvania and they turn on iGaming and it's brand new to you. It is important that you have a brand on there that you trust. I know this game. I know how the math works. I know what the payouts are. And so one of the things that we've really seen, you know, we talk about the omni-channel experience is that uh, the, the, our games and those brands in the land-based business have carried over so very well into the iGaming space because those games have been played for so long and are so well known. So over in the UK, where we have a very mature iGaming business, they've been they've had iGaming for 15 plus years. The number one and number two games in the marketplace are 21 plus three and perfect pairs. The re- reason is, is because those are the number one and number two games in the land-based business. And that's what people grew up uh, playing on there. So because the strength of the brands, that is a little bit of the difference in there. And when you think about iGaming, iGaming is kind of broken up this way. 80% of the business is slots. 20% of the business is table games. Uh, Many of our competitors are very, very focused on slots and we love them to be focused on slots. We focus in on one thing. And, you know, our big competitors in the land-based also have a big slot element of their business. And so and we're, we have a pretty big tunnel focus and, and people have been uh, allowing us to go out there and exploit, you know, both sides of the business. You know, taking a step back, you know, thinking coming out of COVID and, you know, casinos, I mean, they've been open now for a while, but just the reopening of it. I mean, what has been, what, what does the competitive landscape look like for just on, on, we'll talk about on the, um, I guess the in-person brick and mortar side of things. Has it been even more competitive getting floor space or has that just, or are they now right now just like, all right, we're going with the brands we know because we need to get, you know, we're just trying to get the folks back here. Like what, what's, what's been going on as we come out of COVID? I would, say, I would say yes. And yes, I would say one of the biggest things, especially early on coming out of this, that um, our operators were having issues with were having table games dealers, 
right? So just dealing with uh, issues as far as personnel like everybody else. And so there were situations where not all the tables were reopened at once or certain uh, pits were closed for a while. So there was this movement to these electronic gaming tables, right? So you don't need a person there, but you can play 21, you can play poker on there, what have you. The good news is that we also license our content to those places. We're starting to see that stuff free up a bit where we're seeing more uh, tables opening. So that, that is starting to come back uh, for us. And then um, I would tell you that in regards to what they're looking for, the type of content, it's a whole lot easier for them to open a blackjack table than it is taking a flyer on a brand new carnival game, like a brand game like that. So to your point that tried and true, but the good news is, is that we have a lot of blackjack product. We have a lot of Baccarat product now. We have product for craps and, and things like that. So we're covered on what we call those public domain games where we can enhance them with side bets. Got it. And then on the iGaming side, I would assume that's more or less the same thing, right? Is people are willing to, I mean, more or less said that just now is that they're willing to take a chance on that user experience where you know the games, you know the brands, right? Yeah, and, and, but I think that there are some differences. So we own five of the top seven blackjack side bets in iGaming. And that's important for a number of reasons. As iGaming opens up in North America, blackjack is the number one played game. And so we want to make sure that we build a moat around that. And that's pretty easy to do. We want to secondarily get into deeper into our product portfolio. So games with roulette and games with craps. And we just went live with uh, DraftKings on three or four states this week on, they took bonus craps, one of our games, and that's live out there. But the thing that's a little bit different about iGaming than it is at a brick and mortar is that it's not a zero sum game, right? I don't have a situation where I can only fit 10 games in an iGaming space. It's essentially unlimited shelf space. So if you have an opportunity, there's not a whole lot of other cost for them to say host another game up there. So I do think that there is this opportunity for us to come out with a handful of other creative style games that maybe you wouldn't see on a casino floor or maybe someone's not willing to give up a table in a brick and mortar casino, but it doesn't really cost the guys in the iGaming space anything more there. So those are a couple of the differences. Yep, you gotta have the tried and trues, which we've got covered and we've got nailed down, but hopefully we can get a little bit more creative and find some interesting things that we can do as well. Well, you know, I, I asked about competitive landscape and and I, I wanna re-ask it in this sense, you know, what what is what are your competitors doing that are also IP owners, game developers, you know, working with iGaming? Like what what does that landscape look like right now? Yeah, so it's pretty similar, right? Um, it's just that on the iGaming side, like I said, there's a big focus in the slot side of the business because it is 80% of the pie today. So there's a lot of emphasis on that. Uh, in the brick and mortar space, you know, we have two pretty major uh, competitors in AGS and scientific games, and they've been in the market for a while and they know what they're doing. So those are the guys that we run into. They also have some similar IP. Um, I would say scientific games has a couple of brands that are really strong, like three card poker, uh, ultimate Texas Hold'em. And so just like we have some brand recognition on our content, they have it there. Um, we own three card poker uh, in the UK, which is great for us because we can do some fun stuff with that with our progressives. Um, and then now it starts to come into what can you do with your electronics, right? So coming in, we have 
have a, we have a progressive system that's been around for a while, a little dated. We're probably due for something new. Stay tuned. And, um, you know, what can you do with that? Can you start to deliver a better or more interesting experience that's not, not just about a progressive? Can you start to gather some data at the table that you can deliver back to the operator and say, here's some information about this player position or how someone is playing the game, what can you do with those types of things? And so I think a lot of the business is gonna be continuing to offer great IP, but then secondarily for, with technology, what other types of layering can you do on that? You know, will there be a time where we can link a progressive to uh, from the casino to someone uh, in an iGaming space while they're playing at home on their iPad? I believe there will. And then you can start to do some really interesting things with those types of deals. And obviously that becomes very interesting for as far as making sure that those tables stay on the floor and that content stays on the iGaming operator side. So I think there's a lot of um, really making sure you create awesome games. And then what can you do with that from a tech standpoint? So I, I have to ask, you know, because it, when we're talking about IP creating content, within it from a gaming company. I'm sure some folks might be like, wait, what? So explain, can you explain how that works? You know, once you have an idea for a new game, how do you then own the intellectual property rights for that game? Because, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm an idiot here thinking like, all right, I've been playing poker forever. Poker has been played in the old West forever and, you know, blackjack forever, you know, so how, how does, how does that work? So it, uh, I would say it doesn't necessarily work all that well. Um, about six or seven years ago, there was a Supreme Court hearing that basically said, you cannot patent math. And so a lot of the patents went away with table games. So really what you have now, it, it's all about IP, trademarks, branding, things along those lines. And you know, this one of the questions I get from a lot of uh, uh, investors has said, well, why can't so-and-so do this? And, you know, I, I tell them, well, you know, we've got some big customers that have tried to do that. And the brand is just strong where people are looking to do uh, to make sure that they're playing those types of games where you can really start to wrap around some tech on these things or wrap around some patents around stuff is when you can bring tech into it. So if you can wrap some IP around, you know, a new way of doing a progressive or things along those lines, that's where you can do those things. So, um, but the brand itself, you know, 21 plus three is a great example. 21 plus three is the number one side bet in the world. It's probably the number one table game in the world. The company bought 21 plus three, don't quote me, but I think around 2013. And every year since then, we've earned more money on 21 plus three. The brand endures. And my feeling is for each time someone plays, plays 21 plus three, it reinforces the brand even that much more. You know, we're at a point now that, you know, between 21 plus three and perfect pairs, we do about a billion bets a year online just on those two titles. So, you know, the brands themselves, I think, are, are very, very strong. It's our job to make sure that they're even stronger and we push them not just to the player, but to the operator and that our regulators are aware of how strong they are and um, and then continue to do brand extensions off of those. So we have 20. 21 plus three, we have 21 plus three extreme with a different paid table classic. And then we can put the progressives on there and we can do multi-denominational progressives on there. So it's one of those things where, you know, again, I always go back to Coke, Cherry Coke, Diet Coke, things like that. We want to build off of these brands and make them stronger and stronger. You know, two follow-up questions to that. One is I, you mentioned the business model a little bit, but 
you mentioned how 21 plus three and, and the other brand was responsible for a, a billion uh, bets replaced. You know, what are the economics of that? So this is, if you go back to that, that's where uh, we participate in the gross gaming revenue. So when I say a billion bets, that can be of all sorts of denominations. And, you know, it's the payouts after those bets of what that net amount is left for the operator that we participate in that. And so, again, as I mentioned, you know, most of our iGaming, just because there's only five states, there's still rest of the world. So only about 11% of the U.S. population has access to iGaming. So we're big believers that over the next four or five years, a number uh, of states very similar to what we've seen with iGaming or with uh, sports betting, more and more of those states come online with iGaming. You know, I always kind of go back to Michigan, who last year launched and they launched sports betting and iGaming at the same time. Sports betting is a four or 5% margin business, right? So we see all this, you know, the DraftKings and all these types of ads all over the place. And that's a low margin business. iGaming is a better margin business. And so the tax revenue for the first month in Michigan off of sports betting was $111,000. And the tax revenue off of iGaming for the first month was $4 million. So I think what you'll start to see, I mean, I believe that the state of uh, New York introduced an iGaming bill uh, on, they just went live with sports betting not too long ago. We're believers that over the next three to four years, we're going to see more states uh, come online with iGaming. And then my, my, another follow-up question I had to all of that was, you know, you mentioned that you're licensing these games to other iGaming platforms. Yeah. What was that conversation? I mean, I, I'm assuming this conversation maybe happened in the boardroom of, all right, what model do we go down? Do we license it to these other platforms or do we just develop our own individual platforms per game and then go from there? Was that even a conversation or? or it was a know. different conversation completely. Oh, okay. So um, when uh, we went out and we, per we, when I got to the company, we had an agreement in place with a company called uh, PGP and they owned all of our digital rights for iGaming distribution. I didn't love the contract. And um, this was, like I said, about five years ago. So iGaming wasn't really on anyone's mind as much as it is now. And it was a pretty tough contract. And so when, when it came up, um, I didn't have a whole lot of outs on the contract. Did have one out on the contract. And one of those outs was a change in control. And um, when the redemption of Mr. Saucier happened, um, he owned 58% of the company. And so when the redemption happened, that was a change of control. And what that allowed us to do was then to have a conversation with the PGP guys. And we entered into agreement and we bought the distribution uh, rights back, as well as the rights to repairs and some other things. And so when we bought PGP, those agreements were already in place. So, um, you know, and those would be agreements, you know, direct agreements with DraftKings or direct agreements with developers that would create the games and then offer them to these high gaming folks. As we go forward, we're looking at all sorts of different ways. You know, do we develop games ourselves and offer them and change and get a little bit more vertical or do we continue to license uh, on different ways? And so uh, we really like the business model. We want to, we're, we're very, we're much more involved now in regards to look and feel because of the branding of these games now that we, we're involved now that we own PGP. So we want, we have a, 
a look and a feel and a sound of everything that we want people to see when they play one of our games. So um, we're much more involved on there, but those types of, so the, but those agreements were already in place. The, the conversation was, should we buy PGP or not? And we agreed to do that in February of 20, right before the shutdown. And then we had to come up with a big old check by August of 20, which was no fun at that time. Um, but it was the right thing for us to do. And, uh, you know, I think we're very, very happy that we're, um, you know, right in the middle of the iGaming business. And, um, you know, I think that we're going to continue to grow in that marketplace. So even though the timing was tough, we're glad we did it. You know, you mentioned one of one of the questions that I, I'm, I've grown to love asking management teams on this podcast. Yep. And you mentioned about, you know, sometimes investors getting, you know, confused about it's blanking on me exactly what it was that, that you mentioned, but what, what do investors get most confused about when they think of galaxy gaming, you know, probably even folks like me who've known the company for 10 plus years now, and it's gone through all these different iterations kind of, but I, I would say, I would say until, you know, three months ago, the biggest, um, the two biggest questions were always around, um, either the lawsuit that was pending with Mr. Saucier and okay, what was the, you know, what are the real risk factors here? Uh, you know, could the shares go back? And if shares go back, what happens to licenses and things like that? So I, I would say that that was a big concern. And then I think the questions around the, the brand uh, IP and things like that. Um, I think that uh, it's interesting. I'm, I'm sure you know many of our in investors at, at this point. And, uh, you know, I think they have a pretty good handle on the business. I and mean, we're pretty straightforward. We create games, we license IP throughout whatever channel someone uh, wants to consume our content on. And, um, you know, we are big believers that strength in one channel uh, gives us strength in the other channel. So I would say that investors are probably um, not confused about the business. I think, I think investors were concerned about the risks that were with the business uh, up to about three months ago. Got it. Well, here, I wanted to make, uh, this was one potential downside risk I was thinking about, you know, preparing for an interview today and also thus far. And it really speaks to the barrier to entry and, you know, creating that moat that, that Galaxy Gaming is, is looking to accomplish. What's, uh, what's stopping somebody that has a good idea for a game or maybe multiple games from you know, taking that brick and mortar share or taking some of the, you know, the eyeballs and dollars away from, you know, when, when, uh, from the iGaming apps, you know, what, what, what is that barrier to entry in that mode? And why is it not as simple potentially? Yeah. I mean, gaming again is a, is a bit of a walled garden, right? We have these privileged licenses. So if, if you want to take a game uh, and go countrywide, the amount of time, it takes for a new company and a new game to get licensed in every single state with every single tribe is really, really tough. So what you see now is more and more developers that will come up with a game and they'll talk to us. They'll talk to AGS. They'll talk to scientific games because we have the licenses. We have the just distribution network, things like that. And then there's a royalty rate typically back with that. So, you know, I don't ever want to say that there can never be another entry into it, but because of that type of walled garden that we have on the brick and mortar side, you know, those that's really kind of the path for someone that has the next great idea is to work with someone that 
has that distribution out there. The other part about it is that, as I mentioned earlier, the progressives and the technology is really, really important to be able to layer on top of games. So the cost to then develop your own on that is another two years, three years going through the lab, you know, probably a seven figure development cycle, things like that. So the good news is, is if we continue to do a better job and opening up more casinos and have more tables, um, we're a better and better partner for people bringing us great new games. So I want to, I want to talk about Tam, you know, the total addressable market. How would you define that for the, the gaming space that you're, you're in right now? Yeah, so I think about it this way. There's roughly 3,000 brick-and-mortar casinos in the world. Um, you know, we're in north of 500 of them. Not all 3,000 of them all have table games. Um, our, the focus of the company to date has really been, I would say, North America and UK. We have some smattering of some products in Europe and um, in North Africa and things like that. But we have uh, a lot of blue ocean, if you will, right? We don't have a whole lot in Latin America right now. Uh, we want to take the strength of uh, perfect pairs and 21 plus three that we have in the UK and start to march out to Europe. We've made some investments in being able to do that. Um, but there's other markets out there, Australasia, that we now have the right product for. Uh, we did not have, in my opinion, the right Baccarat product until October of last year. Uh, since that time, uh, and with the placements that we've put out with Bakra, I feel like we're on a path where we now have a product that we're going to be able to bring to Asia, which is a heavy, heavy table games market, number one, and Bakra product number two. So that's how I think about the um, uh, size of the TAM, if you will, and brick and mortar. In the uh, iGaming world, um, again, if we think about uh, North America and the U.S., right now only about 11% of the U.S. population or about 30 million people have access to iGaming. iGaming is opening up now in South America. iGaming goes live in Ontario with about 13 million people on April 4th of this year. And then the rest of the world uh, business probably grows, continues to grow at a 10 to maybe 12% uh, number. On there. And again, that's a little bit difficult, right? Because um, they're virtual, right? And so it, they're not constricted by brick and mortar. Uh, people will move pretty quickly around things. People might move from one game to another. So, you know, the overall TAM on iGaming, um, I still think it's a real, it's a, it's a big mover on things. And the other issue that is, you know, people have heard about and, and is, you know, which markets are, you know, gray markets out there, black markets, we steer away from all of that out there because of our privileged licenses that we have here in the States and beyond. So um, it's a little bit difficult on the iGaming. There have been some eye popping numbers out there. I don't requote those because they're too eye popping and people get very, very excited very quickly. I think about, about you know, 10 to 12% growth in um, rest of the world. And I think in North America, you know, that can grow, uh, probably much, much faster over the next four to five years. I really appreciate you not giving that number because I'm sure it, it it's, it's ridiculous. We're a yeah. sub 100 million market cap company. And we're going after a gazillion, bazillion. Yeah, that, I appreciate that's, that's not, that's not my MO, right. You know, as I, as, <laughs> as I did have one investor, uh, he gave me some good advice. He said, he said, you worry about the E I'll worry about the P. So nice, I, nice. I don't play, I don't play that game. 
I like that. Well, speaking of that, you know, what, what would you say is the thesis that if realized these are the inflection points that will lead to growth and shareholder value? Yeah, well, I think, I think November was a big one, right? You know, that ability that we have this clear sailing as far as opening up um, all the jurisdictions that require privileged licenses. I think that was a big one. Um, number two, <clears throat> I would say is uh, increased uh, and, and better product, right? So we have we have a three-year roadmap now that is pretty stocked full of both IP as well as technical products uh, on items. We have some changes in opening up new categories next year that are going to be a little bit different than what we do today. And then I think it's the growth of iGaming in two areas. It's not just getting more population uh, available to iGaming, but it is getting beyond just the blackjack content that we have. Like I said, getting deeper into the product portfolio with some of the roulette product and some of the craps product, <clears throat> excuse me, and some of the poker products out there. So right now we do extremely well in the blackjack area. And now we wanna make sure, as I said, build a moat. You know, so you have our brand extensions on there. And then thirdly, can we come up with some interesting ideas for the live dealer space of the business? It's not something you would necessarily see in, in iGaming. So, um, you know, I would look to say, as you start to see more markets open, as you start to see different product releases uh, open, um, our business, like I said, being uh, an IP business is that, um, you know, we try and run the business where we can grow between the high teens and low 20s. Uh, on the top line and we try to grow our expenses at less than half that and the folks that have kind of done the back of the envelope on that can figure out some math and it usually works out pretty well very good all right i want to get to some some corporate questions uh we're at that part of the interview uh hold on let me get my suit and tie for this part. i'm gonna get my attorney <clears throat> yeah yeah right <laughs> so <laughs> the company has been acquisitive since uh you've taken the reins as ceo can you discuss the company's uh, capital allocation strategy and framework and maybe, maybe discuss uh, were there some failures or, or successes or let, let's yeah. get some story time on the worst deal you've ever done, the best deal. Let's go from there. Yeah, I mean, we, you know, we, we were, as far as major, we've only done really one major acquisition, I would say at this point, and we've done a handful on some IP uh, items and some good and some bad, but those have been really kind of low risk ones, if you will. Um, the way we think about uh, acquisitions now is, is this something that is going to add to the portfolio? Is it something that's going to add, you know, we're being the size that we are, we can't talk about the fact that this is going to add to EBITDA three years from now, right? This stuff has to be instant. I think the best example of that was when we bought PGP, the iGaming company. And at the end of the day, um, you know, we we ended up buying an iGaming company at a multiple, well, well, well less of what iGaming companies go for uh, these days. And I think for from a shareholder uh, standpoint, the purchase of PGP and the use of a little bit of equity and how we did it at that time was the right thing for us to do. Um, Thank God we used a little bit of equity because again, I had to write that check uh, in August of 20 when the world was still you know, half closed and, and 
doing those things. And so I would say that that was probably uh, the best acquisition and probably the scariest because of the timing of things, right? And having to write a $6 million check, it's only going to leave you about two in the bank or so at the time, something along those lines, and you're scrambling and getting in, you know, Main Street loan program, and we were doing PPP, and we're still getting the deal done. Um, long term, it was absolutely the best thing to do, but I would tell you that was probably the, the bigger, uh, that was the biggest nail biting deal that we've done at, at that time as well, because it was big numbers for us, and uh, but it turned out to be a really, really good deal for the company. How much, if at all, have shareholders influenced your decision-making process? I would say probably very little. And the reason about reason I would say that is I am a shareholder. Um, Harry, who's our CFO, is a shareholder. You know, Liparelli is our chairman, shareholder, and all those guys. We think about this business through that lens anyway. And I had someone ask me the other day, an investor said, you know, what would you do differently if you were private? And, you know, my answer is nothing, honestly. Uh, I think that as we've looked at things, um, I think time and again, I think we do look at it through a, a shareholder's lens. When we went and had to go out and raise the money uh, for the settlement with Saucier in November, one of the things that we had to do is that we, because we had taken out a Main Street loan, one of the covenants of the Main Street loan was that you couldn't retire any other debt ahead of that. So we had to retire the bank debt, we had to retire the Main Street loan program and Saucier debt. So we went out and raised 60-ish million or so. And I think that there was a high anticipation from shareholders that there was going to be, it was going to be very dilutive uh, out there. And it turned out uh, we went out and did all debt and we had 3% or so in warrants on there. And I think a lot of the shareholders were really pleased to see that. And, you know, we would have done it that way if we were public or private, because I think the people in this company um, believe in it. I've not sold a share. Harry's never sold a share. Nobody on the board has ever sold a share. And so, um, investors, uh, you know, uh, we appreciate them. I, I talk to them pretty regularly on there, but um, I think we're all kind of in the same boat on things. And so uh, uh, I don't think they have to worry that, uh, you know, we're, we're thinking things a little bit differently. Than that. Very so what makes you most excited when you wake up in the morning and you're like, man, I run Galaxy Gaming. And then conversely, what's well, just a drag? Um, I would tell you that um, the thing I'm probably most excited about right now is that we have the best team that we've had since I've been here. We spend a tremendous amount of time on recruiting really, really good folks. And so I, number one, I enjoy coming to work every day. And uh, I think that this is a, a place where we've recruited really, really good people, even in this marketplace where it's been tough to recruit personnel. I think five or six of the last people we've hired have all been referrals from current employees on there. And so, um, you know, I, I would say that um, I really enjoy developing teams and seeing people uh, do more. And I would, I would tell you that I'm a bit in a transition myself in regards to my day to day. So when COVID hit, you know, um, Harry and I, or we were in every meeting, right? We needed to make sure that this thing was going to stay afloat. So, you know, how much money is in the till, you know, and basically I said, I'll, 
I'll take the front of the house and you take the back of the house. And when this thing's over, I'll meet up with you and let's, let's see where we are. And so I'm in a transition now as we're coming out and the strength of the company is being seen where I got to get out of every meeting, right? And I need to be a bit more strategic. And so I need to put, you know, people in place to, you know, really drive this part of the business or develop these types of games. And I need to let go and let some of these people flourish on things. So I would tell you that 70% or so of my time is making sure that I'm um, getting out of those in the weeds deals and that I'm getting uh, and focusing on the more strategic things and thinking about what, what are we doing three years from now and getting out of people's way. I mean, we've got really, really good people here and I need to let them do their job. So, you know, I think that's the thing that's the most uh, exciting for me right now. And at times, quite honestly, challenging because when you're in a small business, you know, I'm not used to not knowing every single thing that's going on, but the business grows and you have to trust people. So I would say that that's the biggest thing. Um, the thing that I don't love to do right now, um, it's hard for me because, you know, when you, as you mentioned earlier, when you go through the last four and a half, five years of, you know, dealing with the lawsuits and the regulatory issues, and then you deal with COVID and all those things. And then you wake up at the beginning of 22 and COVID is mostly in the background and you have this iGaming arm that you bought and that thing's humming along pretty good. And you can kind of go into all these other areas. Um, you're, you're looking around and like, this is pretty good stuff. Like this is, this is good. Um, I think that, uh, you know, it's, it's three things for, for me. It's, uh, I wanna make sure that we continue to recruit and have the best people, right? First and foremost. Number two, we have to continue to stay innovative on things and make sure that we create great products. And we have to continue to take care of our customers. Um, if there's one thing that I don't love uh, as much is I haven't been able to spend as much time with customers as I used to sitting in this seat. But, you know, there's very little that I brag on in regards to this business, except one thing. And that is our net promoter score. And when we talk about customers, um, you know, a net promoter score is you know, world-class companies usually have like a 70 or something. I think that's where Apple is. Over the last year, I think we've averaged 95 plus on that. And what that tells me is that customers like what we're doing for them. And if we create more and interesting products, they'll probably take more of it. So, you know, my, my thoughts are what keep me up at night are, are we servicing our customers and making sure no one else, you know, someone else isn't doing it? And are we coming up with great products to, to, for them to take? And so, I mean, those are, I would say, not the things that I don't like doing, but those are the worries. And those are the things that drive us to make sure that we're going to continue to deliver for those guys. So I only have a couple more questions for you. Um, my next one. And you've alluded to the success part, but what what does success and what does failure look like to you? Uh, they're, they're the three same words for both, right? It's people, customers, and products. Um, if, if we don't have the best people here, um, everything just goes to hell, right? It just goes to hell. And um, it's one of the things that we have to, to really think about going forward. You know, it has been the Harry and Todd show for the last four or five years. We've been a smaller company and we're getting through COVID and we need to make sure that that works. Harry and I go to Chipotle one day for lunch, get hit by a Mack truck. That's not good for the business, right? So getting those uh, other people and letting people do their 
jobs and filling out and having uh, more folks on the executive level that can run this business once Harry and I are told to, to hit the bricks. I think that's a big part of it. On the product side of things, you know, while you have 21 plus three and, and perfect pairs, they just continue to go on forever. Um, you still need to fill things back up. And that's why I'm encouraged by the new Baccarat product, right? You know, I believe by the end of the year, that'll be a seven figure a year recurring revenue business. And it'll only take us 12 months to get there. And so creating those types of games and products and finding new channels for that content to go into. And then, you know, we need, uh, we need to lock down our customers and we need more customers on, on things. And so we, we have taken uh, some steps, you know, we have added a number of salespeople. So we have more time with customers and it's not about selling them all the time. It's walking the floors, what's working for you, what's not working for you. Do we need to swap something out? So, you know, we're a very, very high touch business. And I think that that is our secret sauce, our ability to customize a pay table for a customer. The fact that our service guys are just they're the best. They're just complete badasses. You know, the, what we get, we send out a survey after every service call and this is where we get our net promoter score. And the comments that we get from customers are just, they're just awesome. And so, you know, we need to stay high touch because if we don't, someone else will. So I, I think of success as those three things. And I think failure is just the opposite if we don't take care of those three things. And so again, we're a pretty simple business and I'm a pretty simple person and we try and just kind of narrow it down to, you know, three or so things to focus on. And if we execute well, um, our business model is very, very good. And so for us, I think 22 is, uh, is all about execution and setting up a really, really interesting 23. My final question for you, but before we let you go here, do you enjoy being a public company CEO? I mean, you've, it's funny, you got that question, you know, from an investor saying, would you do the same things as a private company CEO? And it's kind of a similar question here is like, there's one thing, you know, enjoying waking up and being the, you know, running, a, running your business and being excited about it. But then it's another thing about, you know, being that public company CEO. So do you enjoy it? Yeah, I would tell you that for a company our size, um, being a public company, it's been, you know, it's difficult now, right? You know, we're, in fact, I was just talking to Harry about this at lunch and, you know, there's just added costs and in, in audits and things like that. And there's just a high bar for a public company. And when you're the size we are, you know, what I don't want is I don't want more accountants than salespeople, right? You know, so from that standpoint and the regulatory items and the compliance items that is required of that, it, that's no fun, right? However, being a smaller company and, and being a, a company where, you know, the stock has performed decently, for the last little bit is that if I want to go out there and find talent to a company where from a company where I maybe not be, are able to compete with them on just strict salary, but I can, I can offer them some equity on something like this, that has been a way for us to attract really, really good talent. So from that standpoint, I think that, you know, that gives us some abilities, but on the day-to-day -day stuff, and, you know, I will speak for Harry and his team because they have to live it every day, but you know, it's, you know, it's, filling out forms and talking to auditors all the time, things like that is probably not the number one thing I'd want to be doing. So, Fair but those are the gifts of it. Hey man, and you said, let's being very <clears throat> humble. I mean, since you joined, you were announced as CEO on July 26, 2017, as of close yesterday, I mean, the, the stock has performed uh, just over 470%. So 
when you say decent, yeah, yeah, sure, decent. Um, <laughs> we we still have we still have some more work to do. So, and we'll, hopefully, we'll, we'll continue to um, execute, and hopefully, that number gets a little bit higher. Sure thing. All right. Well, Todd, with that, where can our audience go and find more information to follow along the Galaxy Gaming Store? Um, I mean, we're, uh, you know, on, I think most of the socials out there and things like that, but we're at galaxygaming.com. Um, you know, we do a pretty good job of uh, press releases. You know, we have some, some, some new content and some new product coming out this year. So I would have people keep their ears and eyes open on that type of stuff. And um, you know, we appreciate uh, the folks that have uh, jumped on the bandwagon with us uh, thus far. And, uh, you know, our goal is to continue to execute for everyone. Very good. Todd, thank you so much for joining me today. I really do appreciate it. Good luck. Thank you. Good luck. Stay safe. And I I look forward to our next update. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not provided as financial, legal, or any other advice. The information is not investment advice or an offer to buy or sell any securities or make any investment. The views expressed by guest speakers are their own and any reference to third-party products, services, or information does not constitute an endorsement thereof by SNN or its affiliates. SNN expressly disclaims all liability for any individual's use of the information presented in this podcast.